All right, so tonight there's really three main movements in this episode. The first movement is just sort of the preparation for this battle that is going to come. And there's a couple of lessons I'll point out to you as we look at that in the first eight verses. Then there's a second section which details the actual event of the death of Absalom itself. And then the last movement is David's reaction to the news of Absalom's death. Now, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, and this type of thing is mentioned in other places throughout the New Testament, that the Scriptures are they which bear witness of the Lord, bear witness of Jesus. So it's worth asking the question at each juncture in Scripture, how does this particular episode or story point us to Jesus? How does it point us to uh, the gospel? And I think one way that this particular passage points us to the Lord is by just going back and remembering the promise that God made to David. Remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, David had a desire to build a permanent temple for God. You know, the, the ark had been in a tabernacle for many years at that point, God had given the design for that tabernacle to Moses. Moses told the people of Israel, they built it, and the ark had just sort of wandered wherever uh, it was appropriate at that time. But when David took Jerusalem for God and made it the capital city of Israel, he sensed that this was a time of real permanence in Israel, that God had really blessed them. And so now they had a permanent epicenter. And so he said, okay, I want to make a permanent place. It's okay. It's okay. I know we got a sneezer in the house tonight. What can you do? You can't do anything about it. Just let those sneezes flow. That's, how, that's what I say, Eliana Shively. So David wanted to build a permanent structure uh, for the Lord. And when he told Nathan the prophet about that. Nathan said, go for it. But then God corrected Nathan and told Nathan, hey, David is not to be the one to build me the house. His offspring will build me the house. But you go back and you tell David that I will build him a house. And then as Nathan made that prediction, he told David, he said, and one is going to sit on his throne and I will establish his kingdom forever. Now we know from looking backwards, that when Nathan was speaking those prophecies, he was speaking about Jesus. That Jesus would come and he would be the messianic figure to sit on David's throne eternally. And we're still actually, in a sense, waiting for him to return to sit on that throne forever and ever. But at the time of David's life, as word began to spread, hey, God gave David an incredible promise that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever and that God would establish that kingdom forever, people began to wonder, who's going to be the fulfillment of that prophecy? David's first son was named Amnon. I'm sure people wondered, is it going to be Amnon? But Amnon at this point is dead. Uh, he had a second son named Chiliab. Uh, at this point, it seems that he also has died. And his third oldest son was Absalom. Uh, and we saw a few weeks ago that he's a pretty traitorous kind of guy. He's got the long hair, you know, the author tells us. He's just very in love with his looks and all of that. And he also is going to die. 
And on down the line, you see that God has said, look, this is what I'm going to do, but it's not Amnon, it's not Chiliab, it's not Absalom, it's preparing our hearts to receive Christ. So as we're going through this, I hope it's not too much of a stretch for you, because what I'm going to try to point out is a contrast between the death of Absalom and the death of Christ. And then I want to point out to you a contrast between the mood of David at Absalom's death and the mood of not Absalom's father, but our father in heaven at the death of his son. So I'm hoping to try to show you the cross a little bit tonight through Absalom's death, but also the heart of Father God in the event of the cross uh, itself. So that's a lot of background material for you. So let's look at that first category that I mentioned to you in verse 1 through 8, the battle itself. Okay, so David has fled from Jerusalem at this point. It says in verse 1, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. So his army has grown. He's on the other side of the Jordan. He's actually in a town at this point called Mahanaim. It was a place actually that Ishbosheth for a while had built his kingdom. So when Saul died, Ishbosheth, his son, tried to resurrect the kingdom of Saul, and he did it from this town called Mahanaim. Uh, Mahanaim for a little while. So David's got his army. And it says in verse 2, And David sent out the army, verse 2, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. Now, you might remember him from a few weeks ago when David was fleeing from Jerusalem. All these different people came and visited him, said, we're with you. Ittai was one of those guys. And David actually told him to go back to Jerusalem. He said, you know, get out of here. You just showed up yesterday. Why suffer with me? You're a foreigner. But Ittai said, no, I'm devoted to you. You know, I'll die with you wherever you die. I'm going to live with you wherever you live. If you're on the throne, then cool. If not, I'm going to be with you. And so he was devoted to David. David accepted that devotion along with Ittai's warriors. So you got Joab, uh, Abishai, their brothers, their third brother, Asahel's already dead at this point, so a third of the army doesn't go with Asahel. He's deceased. He goes with uh, Ittai. So it just sort of helps us see uh, you know, faithfulness in the small things leads to great opportunities, open doors in the future, and that's what Ittai experienced. So the king, verse 2, said to the men, I myself will also go with you. All right now, this is refreshing for us because you guys remember the last time that David decided not to go out to battle? It was a really bad thing that happened. It was 2 Kings chapter 11. At the time when the kings go out to war, David decided to stay home and he walked about on the roof of his palace and he saw Bathsheba and the rest is history. Okay, so when we see that David says, I'm going with you, we're like, oh yes, praise the Lord. He's going to stay out of trouble. He's going to go out and he's going to fight. But the men, verse 3, said to him, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. Stay in Mahanaim, you know, be there. It's better that you give us strategic help and support in that way. And the king, verse 4, said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the big question is, why did David's generals counsel him 
to stay in Mahanaim and not go out into battle with them. I think there were probably two big reasons. One was strategic. They alluded to it right there. They said, we're 10,000 of us are worth less than one of you. You see, they had gotten intelligence from Hushai, from Ahimaz, the uh, son of the priest, son of Zadok, and Abiathar, the priest. They'd gotten intelligence that said that Absalom's whole plan was to strike David, you know, and the whole concept was, if we can just kill David, then we don't have to kill everybody else. So all we got to do is get David. So they understand that. They're like, look, all they want to do is they just want to kill you. So you get back in the city, you go into hiding, and we'll preserve your life. If you go out into battle, they're going to see you on your like white horse or whatever, you know, and they're just going to put all their effort into taking out your life. They don't care about defeating the army. They care about defeating you. And once they get you, then Absalom has secured the crown. So it's strategic. But I think there was probably a secondary reason as well. I think it was a a sympathetic reason. You see, David had already demonstrated that he did not like confronting his children. And what we're going to see later in the passage is that he actually mourned rather deeply Absalom's death. It seems really clear that one of the things that David feared most was going to war and having to actually, in hand-to-hand combat, deal with his own son. And so I think that terrified David. So I think there was a sense in which he was probably looking for a little bit of an out. And the reason I think that is because when they give him the counsel, stay home, he's like, okay. That doesn't seem like David in any other passage when there's like a war about to go down. It seems like he's like, Goliath? I'm going to kill him. You know, this is like his mood, generally speaking, in Scripture that he's going to go to war. But here he uh, submits to the counsel of these generals. He's got good friends interceding for him at this moment. So verse 5, it says, And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard, when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The idea is that Absalom's forces lost 20,000 men. And the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And it seems like what's happening here is that David, who, remember, has spent many years wandering in this wilderness. He knows these forests. He knows this terrain. And he's a, a brilliant military tactician. Absalom comes out. He's a total rookie. You know, He thinks his hair is going to win the battle. He comes out with his armies, and he, David's got himself from Mahanaim giving directions. He knows the terrain. He's got Joab, Abishai, and Gittai. I mean, it's not a fair fight in terrain like that. So the idea that the narrator is giving to us is Absalom goes out with his armies, and yeah, the sword took out Absalom's armies, but you could really accredit the victory to the terrain that they were in. The forest took more people that day than the sword, is what the narrator tells us. All right, so that's kind of the backdrop. Now, it says that the forest took people out. Now we have a literal case of the forest taking someone out with Absalom. So let's read on in the story. 
It says in verse 9, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. So there he is. He's riding his trusty steed, a mule, (laughs) and he's cruising along. And I, I should say that scholars think that we're not talking about like a small little donkey here. We're talking about a larger animal closer to what we would equate as a, as a modern horse. And he's riding along, and he's probably in retreat. And he perhaps maybe imagine it a little bit, looking around, looking over his shoulder. And he's in the forest. He's not accustomed to riding in terrain like that. He's got his long hair. We remember that. The author's already told us about that a few chapters ago. And something happens, and, and he abruptly gets caught in this oak tree. I had a guy tell me after the nine o'clock service this morning, he said, yeah, when you were telling that story, I remembered a time when I was a kid and I was riding bikes with my little sister and her hair was flowing and we rode by a blackberry bush and her hair just, boom, got caught in it. The bike kept going and she was stuck and I had to come back and I had to, you know, pull her out, you know, kind of thing. doesn't say specifically that Absalom's hair got caught in the tree, but it seems that everything we've been told so far about his looks, his hair, all of that, we're meant to think of it at this moment. So he's caught there hanging in this tree, and his mule just keeps going. A certain man saw it, verse 10, and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him, why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. You know, so he's like, oh, sweeten the deal. I've thrown a belt. I noticed your pants seem a little loose. I'll give you a belt also. So, he, you know, he, he, Joab is astounded. How did you not kill him? How did you not strike him down? You saw him, you didn't kill him. I, if, if you'd have brought me the report, I'd have, I'd have rewarded you greatly. But I always love this man's quick, poetic reply. The man said to Joab, verse 12, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. You know, so he tells him, I heard what David said. David said, take it easy on Absalom. He told you and the other generals, I heard it. On the other hand, verse 13, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. You know, he's just telling Joab, he's like, man, I know what kind of guy you are. You might have given me the 10 pieces of silver and a belt, and then I'd have brought my 10 pieces of silver and my new belt into King David, and David would have inquired and figured out that I killed his son And as David became enraged at me and sought to take my life, you would have just faded into the background. You wouldn't have said anything. I know what you're like, Joab. So Joab, not really knowing what to say to the guy, said in verse 14, I will not waste time like this with you. He's just like, this conversation's over. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. 
And 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So they were emboldened by Absalom. And so they rose up, these chief warriors of Absalom's, these armor bearers, and they also struck Absalom. Then Joab, verse 16, blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. So once Absalom was out of the way, Joab felt that the battle was over. He didn't want any more Israelites to die unnecessarily, so he blows the trumpets. The troops come back, and they took, verse 17, Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled everyone to his own home. Now we have this little editorial note in verse 18. It says, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. Now obviously you and I aren't around. We weren't there at the time to go through the king's valley. But the narrator is writing this as if the readers would go, Oh yeah, I remember that monument in the king's valley. Tell me about that. And he says, For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. It is called Absalom's Monument to this day. So this is not surprising to us about Absalom at all, is it? There was a time, apparently, the narrator tells us, where Absalom had no sons. Earlier we read that he did have some sons. So to reconcile the two accounts, it seems that he either built this monument before he had children, maybe at a moment where he was scared that he'd have no kids, so he built a monument for himself, and then once his sons came along, he's like, well, you know, the monument's there already. We might as well keep it there. Or his sons died in some other battle or something like that, and so now he's childless, and he builds this monument for himself. Okay, so that's the death of Absalom. This is what you guys get to talk about in life group this week. All right, so... You know, for us, we read this. It's a guy hanging in the air. You know, we're rooting for David, you know, stuff like that. But again, remember what it was like for the people of Israel. God had made this promise to David, their first real, you know, legitimate, you know, king after Saul was rejected by God. God had made this promise to David. There's going to come one from your, you know, family tree, one of your descendants who I'm going to establish his throne forever, his kingdom forever. And they're waiting for that. You know, they're waiting for that. They're longing for that. They desire that. And Absalom rises up and he's, you know, smooth of speech and all of that. And he starts stealing their hearts and they begin to wonder, maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is, maybe this is our, the one that we've hoped for. The one that is going to save us. The one that is going to really Build this kingdom that God is really going to bless. Maybe this is the one. I mean, this is not hard for us to imagine. A group of people putting their hopes, their desires on a person. So Absalom goes out to war. Maybe he's the guy, maybe he's the guy. And then, boom, gets caught in a tree, stabbed by Joab a bunch of times. Joab's armor bears thrown into a pit, a bunch of rocks put on top of him. And it's like, he's not the guy. <laughs> he's not the guy. All hopes are lost. He's not the guy. It's hard for me, though, like I mentioned earlier, not to see some pretty significant contrasts between Absalom's death, the guy who was not the guy, and the death of Christ, who is the guy. So let me list them for you. Number one, the text makes it clear, Absalom died with many others, but Jesus died alone. 
Absalom died with many others. The record tells us that there were 20,000 other soldiers on Absalom's side who, who needlessly died in battle because of his rebellion. So 20,000 of them died, and he died right along with them. But when Jesus died, he died alone. Now, what I mean by that is not that when he died on the cross, there was nobody else that died that day, or even that there was no one else who died on that hillside with him. There were, after all, at his right and left, two robbers who were also being crucified. But of his group of disciples, no one else had to go to their death in that moment. Jesus actually acknowledged this in prayer to his father right before the cross event in John chapter 17, verse 12. He said to the father, he said, well, I was with my disciples. I kept them in your name, which you've given to me. I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled, talking about Judas. So Jesus was, uh, I don't know if proud is the right word, proud in a, in a righteous sense, of the fact that he had not lost any of his disciples, that they didn't have to go and suffer and die, but that he would suffer, that he would die on their behalf. I have not lost any of them, he said to the Father. Number two, Absalom was caught up in a tree by his hubris, but Jesus went to his tree with humility. Now you say, hey Nate, I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus didn't die on a tree. He died on a cross. But the Old Testament declares in the book of Deuteronomy that the one who is hanged in a tree is cursed. And the New Testament authors pick up on that statement and use the cross as a picture of Jesus dying on a tree and stating that he was cursed there upon his cross. So it's in Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then Peter even more explicitly says it in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, when he said, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So the New Testament way of thinking about the cross was that of a tree. It wasn't a literal tree. It was obviously taken from a tree, fashioned from a tree, and made into a cross. Uh, but the New Testament way of thinking of the cross was that of a tree. So when Absalom is there hanging from a tree, it seems, I think, that the readers are meant to go back to a few chapters earlier when the editor, the narrator tells us, you know, Absalom had this long hair and every time he would cut it, he would weigh it and all of that. It seems that we're meant to think he's so prideful of this long hair that's flowing and all of that. And now he's caught in a tree. It seems that we're supposed to think part of what got him stuck was his pride. And part of what caused him to rebel was his pride, his arrogance against David. He got caught up in his tree because of his pride, but Jesus went to his tree because of his humility. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that Jesus was found in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It wasn't pride that put Jesus upon the cross, it was his humility that put him upon his cross. By the way, when Paul says that in Philippians chapter 2, it's a, it's a pretty profound theological little section there in Philippians chapter 2, which it kind of stands as like a bright 
theological moment in the book of Philippians because Philippians is a pretty personal letter thanking them for their financial generosity to him uh, in his ministry. He doesn't have a lot of corrections and stuff like that, but he does want to exhort them for a moment in Philippians 2 to treat each other with humility. So he tells them, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ. And then he talks to them about how Jesus's humility drove him to the cross. So that humility is supposed to be found within us, within God's people. Back to Absalom and David, though. Number three, Absalom was not sold out by a stranger, but Jesus was sold out by a friend. Did you notice that there? This military man, he just tells Joab, he's like, look, even if you put a thousand pieces of silver in my hand, this guy that I know deserves to die, who came out into battle against us, this is like fair game right now, I would not touch him. But Judas, who Jesus referred to as a friend, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Absalom was not sold out by a stranger, but Jesus was sold out by a friend. By the way, you guys know why that had to happen, right? I mean, partly because it was prophesied of a few different times in the Old Testament that for 30 pieces of silver, the Messiah would be betrayed. But part of the reason that it had to happen was because the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus, but he was at the zenith of his popularity in the minds of many people. So during the daytime, they knew where Jesus was, but he was also surrounded by all these people with like, I love Jesus t-shirts and signs, you know. <laughs> and, and so they just realized like, it's going to be a very unpopular move for us to go in in the midst of all these people and arrest Jesus. So they wanted to arrest him privately at night, but the week before the cross, Jesus was in hiding at nighttime. So they needed to pay off a friend who knew where he'd be in the evenings. And that's why he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane because Judas knew that on the nights of the festival, the owner of the Garden of Gethsemane would allow Jesus and his disciples to sleep there. It was kind of their hotel because Jerusalem became, uh, Jerusalem's population swelled during the time of the festival. So Jesus betrayed by his friend. Number four, Absalom was speared multiple times while alive, but Jesus was speared once after his death. You see, there's Absalom hanging on his tree. He's still alive. He's still living. There's hope. But Joab comes along with the three javelins and spears him. But when Jesus died, he was speared once, but after his death. Now, this is actually prophetically important because in the Old Testament, in Psalm 34, the prophecy was that the Messiah, when he died, that none of his bones would be broken. And when the Jews had a, a deal with the Romans at the time that Christ was crucified, that if they were crucifying people near a holy day, because crucifixion could take sometimes a week for somebody to die. They could be on that cross for a week. Um, it was a terrible form of death. So the Jews had a deal with the Romans that if it was around a holy day, the Romans would expedite the person's death by coming up to them and breaking their legs while they were on the cross. And the reason that that would speed things up is because the way that someone being crucified would continue to, to live is by pushing up on their legs so that they could take a breath and then their bodies would sag again. So if their legs were broken, they could no longer push up. They'd have to try to pull up and after a while, 
all their strength would be gone and they'd sag and they'd eventually die. So it sped up their death. So there came a moment when Jesus was on the cross where everybody said, hey, let's do it. Let's break their legs, speed up their death. But when they came to Jesus, they discovered that he was already dead. But in order to prove it, they took a spear and thrust it through his side and outflowed blood and water, which medically today we understand means that he, his heart had already ruptured. He had already died. But it was just another way that Scripture was fulfilled in the way that Jesus died. Not one of his bones, the prophecy had said, would be broken. So that's why I point that one out. Absalom speared multiple times while alive, but Jesus was speared once after death. And then number five, Absalom died because of his rebellious sin, but Jesus died for our rebellious sin. There's a, the, the picture there after Absalom dies. What do they do? This is interesting. It, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but I'll explain it to you from their vantage point. They took Absalom's body and they put him in a pit, and then they took stones and they heaped stones upon him. That became his tomb. Now there was a law for the people of Israel in the Old Testament era pertaining to ultra-rebellious children where a parent could, if a child was really rebellious, they could go to the elders of the city and they could have a you know, powwow about this child. And if the elders determined that this child was cancerous, you know, probably not little children, but you know, a teenager, somebody like that. If, if the elders determined that this person was cancerous, they could actually declare them guilty of rebellion against their parents, and they could stone them to death. Now, we don't have any record in the Old Testament era of parents actually like going through this process. I'm sure there were lots of threats about it. You know, like, you say one more word, I'm going to the elders, man. I read Deuteronomy. <laughs> I'm going to go through the whole process. But there was no, we have no record of anybody going through with it. But this this really would be the one place that you would see it take place. You have the, an ultra-rebellious son in Absalom, you know, so rebellious against his forgiving, lenient, gracious father. And the nation, it's as if they say, the elders have determined you are a rebellious son. We're throwing you in the pit and we're going to heap these rocks upon you as a way to say you have died because of your rebellion against your father. But Jesus did not die because of his rebellious sin like Absalom did. Jesus died for our rebellious sin. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And then lastly, about Absalom and Jesus, number six, Absalom made a monument because he had no sons, but Jesus' monument, the cross, gives birth to many sons. You know, Jesus obviously was an unmarried man. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have natural-born offspring. It's actually interesting. There's a, in Isaiah 53, which talks about Jesus, you know, before he ever came, and talks about his death, it says in Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8, that there's a question that's asked. It's, 
who can describe his generation? Who's going to talk about his family? Like, what's going to happen? Like, he's going to come, he's going to die, he's going to be cut off, he'll have no kids. Like, who's going to declare his generation? And there was actually a time in the book of Acts where there was an Ethiopian man who had left Jerusalem and was going back down to Ethiopia. He was a prominent figure. And he was reading Isaiah 53. He was reading that section. And Philip had been sent to him by the Holy Spirit. And Philip was like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm reading. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, well, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? It's like the ultimate open door. I'm sure this happens to you every week at work, right? You know, someone's just there reading the Bible. You're like, do you understand what you're reading? How can I understand unless somebody explains it to me? And you're like, well, allow me. You know, <laughs> It was just a total tee it up Holy Spirit moment for Philip. And he climbs up in the chariot and he begins to explain it. But the thing that the, that the eunuch was reading, he said, what about this verse? Who will declare his generation? I think that he was kind of thinking a little bit about his own life. Like this guy that I'm reading about in Isaiah 53, he had no offspring, he had no generation, no one could declare it. I'm feeling the same way about my future. You know, who's going to declare his generation? What's going to happen? And Philip comes in and he declares, well, this is talking about Jesus. And he did have offspring, maybe not biologically, but spiritually. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, that Jesus, through the cross, brought many sons, and I think we also say daughters, to glory. That happened through the cross of Jesus Christ. So Absalom goes to his death bemoaning the fact that he had no sons, no offspring in that kind of way. But Jesus went to his death And his death produces the way for all of us to make not just biological children, but many spiritual offspring for the Lord. So some contrast there between their two deaths. All right, now let's read the end of the chapter and see how David responds to this whole thing. It says, Then Ahimaaz, verse 19, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of of his enemies. Now remember, Zadok was the priest who David sent back to Jerusalem to spy for him. His son was Ahimaaz, and Ahimaaz would get the news from his dad and run and bring it out to David in the wilderness. So now he's like, this is my job, man. My job is to run and bring news to David. So let me do it, Joab. Uh, But remember, there was a guy who ran and brought news to David about Saul and Jonathan's death. He claimed credit for it, but he died. Then there were a couple other guys. I want to say Bana and Birab or Rehab. And those two guys, they killed Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and they ran and told David about it, and David killed them. So I think Joab, he's kind of thinking about Ahimaaz, and he's like, I like you, man. I don't want you to die. So Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. But there was another guy that apparently Joab didn't like as much. We don't even know his name. He's just called the Cushite. So verse 21, then Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahmaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, 
let me also run after the Cushite. You know, I, I want to go too. I still want to go. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for the news? I can't pay you for this. I already sent the Cushite. Come what may, he said, verse 23, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. The idea is the Cushite took a direct route to David over mountains and difficult terrain. And Ahimaaz took a longer route by way of the plain, though, so it was easier running, and he was fast. He got there more quickly than the Cushite. Now David, verse 24, was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. You know, David just putting it together, like it's not a lot of men running away in retreat. It's one man running, so it's, it's not a retreat, it's news. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman, verse 26, saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. You know, so you've, you, you ever watch somebody run, you know, and after a while you're like, that's how they run. You know, from far away you're like, I can see it. You know, they got that little like hitch in their step or whatever, you know. So this guy, he's seen Ahimaaz run before. He's like, I, I'm pretty sure that's him. I can, I can see it, you know. He's got that little thing he does, you know, his leg kick or whatever. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, after hearing that you know, good news, we won, he said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I don't know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Now, some people think that Ahimaaz just really didn't know whether Absalom was dead or not, but I don't think that's the case because Joab said to Ahimaaz, he said, you're not going to go to tell the king today because the king's son is dead. So I think he put two and two together and realized the king's son is dead. Uh, so I, th I think he's withholding information from David. He might not have seen exactly how it happened, but... He knew that Absalom was dead, but he holds it back. And behold, verse 31, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. Real similar news to what Ahimaaz said. The king said to the Cushite, verse 32, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. It was another way of saying, yeah, he's dead, and I want every one of your enemies to have the same fate. And the king, verse 33, was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now this dramatic response from David is going to continue on into the episode next week. Um, but, and, and Joab 
his commander is actually going to rebuke David for this attitude. He's going to say, hey, man, you've got to get it together. All these guys are coming back from war. They went out to fight for you. They went out to protect you from Absalom. And you're up here in the gate just like weeping and moaning, oh, Absalom, I wish I had died instead of you, you know, and all that. You're making these guys feel bad. They just went and won a war for you. So he kind of rebukes David. But that's David's spirit. That's David's attitude. He is just so sad for the death of his son. All right, now, in just thinking about this, I just want to take a moment. I contrasted, or tried to at least, the death of Absalom with the death of Christ. And I'd like for a moment just to have us think for a second about the mood of David, the father of Absalom, and to contrast it with the mood of Father God for the death uh, or surrounding the death of Jesus. Let me just mention a few things. David regained the throne while losing his son, but the father regained the throne while also regaining his son. This is what Jesus prayed when he right before he went to the cross. He prayed to the Father in John 17, verse 5. He said, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And when Jesus died, you know, there's a sense in which the Son has died. The Father is making a way for himself to regain humanity through the death of his Son. But then Jesus rises from the dead and then ascends right back to the right hand of the Father. So in a sense, the Father receives his kingdom, while also receiving his son. David lost his son and received his kingdom, but the father lost his son, then received his son in receiving his kingdom. So a difference. Number two, David avoided Absalom's death, right? I mean, the men told him, stay home, don't go. David avoids it. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. But the father partnered with the son in the atonement. You know, father and son in the triune Godhead made an agreement together that this would be the plan. They joined together in the atonement. It says in Romans 3, verse 25, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. It was Father God who joined. David avoids it, but the father partners with the son in the death of the son. Number three, David requested that they deal gently with Absalom. You know, over and over again, that's his desire. Like, deal gently with him, don't take him, deal gently with him. But the father made no such request. The father laid our iniquity upon his son. That's what the idea of Romans 3.25 that I just read to you is, Uh, concerning the word propitiation. It is the satisfying of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. It's it's satisfying uh, that wrath within the Lord. Isaiah 53, verse 6, mentions the same kind of concept as well. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And then in Isaiah 53, verse 10, it says it even more strongly. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, speaking of Jesus, that he would be crushed. It was the will of the Father that he would be crushed. Now, I realize that these are 
interesting, and, and in a sense, maybe the word terrible, like terrible things to think about. The father uh, laying the iniquity of humanity upon his son and doing so willingly that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So a few things to remember about this. First of all, when we talk about God's wrath being satisfied, the propitiation, you know, the, the wrath of God being satisfied, we have to, first of all, remember the nature of God's wrath. God's wrath is so unlike the wrath of humanity. You know, Nate's wrath, it's totally self-motivated, selfish. It's outbursts, fits, you know, and, and all of that. You can laugh at that. That's fine. I'll, I, throw my, I throw my little fits, you know, from time to time. That's, that's the wrath of man. God's wrath, holy wrath, it is a settled anger against the cancerous sin that is destroying humanity. It builds and builds and builds. It's patient, slow, it takes time. But he has a hatred for the sin that is killing humanity. He loves the sinner, but he hates what our sin does to us. So in a sense, you could say that God's love requires his wrath. Another thing to remember is the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe in a triune God. And the reason I mention that is because if Christians merely believed that there were three gods, then it does it, it is fairly severe to consider that one of the gods then laid the punishment or the wrath upon another of the gods. But the reality is, as much as it's difficult for us to understand the triunity of God, that, that God is one, yet fully three distinct persons within his oneness, not just you know one, but then sometimes showing up as father, sometimes as son, sometimes as spirit. That's not the way it works. He is fully father, fully son, fully spirit, but also fully one. There's a cohesiveness and togetherness, if that's the right word, to describe the Godhead. So I say that just to say that when Jesus was suffering upon the cross, though he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it is wrong for us to consider that there was no suffering in the rest of the Godhead. It does not diminish our Christology at all to say that the Father suffered. Not, and, and maybe we would even want to clarify even further to say it wasn't just the pain of a longing Father, but that God had made a decision to atone for the sin of the world. Okay, now, obviously, it was the second person of the Trinity who was active in that work. But you can't just separate them out from each other as if there are those hard lines between them. The, the entire triunity of God suffered in that cross event in different ways, but all of them, uh, all of God suffered in that moment. And then also, we have to remember who originated the propitiation of the, that wrath. In other religions, the idea is there's a God who has fits and outbursts of wrath, and humans put together, you know, cobble together some sacrifices and bring them to that God. Like, please be propitiated with these gifts. 
But in Christianity, it is God who asks the question, how can my wrath be satisfied? How can my wrath be propitiated? What sacrifice can I offer to satisfy my own wrath? So it's just a totally different ballgame. So David, you know, he wanted this gentle treatment of Absalom, but the father laid our iniquity upon his son. All right, two more real quickly. David hoped for the good news that Absalom was alive. That's what he was waiting for. He sees the messengers and he's like, it's a message, it's news. And then he hears it's Ahimaaz and he's like, it's good news. That guy always brings good news, it's good news. He's hoping that Absalom is alive. David hoped for that good news. But the father, he created the good news, the gospel. That's what the word gospel means, literally, good news. He created the good news through the death of his son. And then lastly, number five, David despaired for his son. He wept and was so sad about the death of his son, but the father despaired for humanity. 1 John 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. So, I just wanted to think about that a little bit tonight because, you know, our mission statement as a church is Jesus famous. We want to preach the cross, think about the Lord, think about the blood, think about what Jesus did upon the cross. And I think that the New Testament teaches us that that is what the Holy Spirit is aiming for. He seeks to glorify Jesus, not himself, but Jesus. So scripture is pointing to Jesus. The spirit is exalting Jesus, not us. Uh, But I think at times, we might forget the Father and His attitude, His mood. And I just know for me, when I first started walking with the Lord, it was just all about this discovery that I had a Father in heaven who wanted to be with me, spend time with me, counsel me, love me, teach me, hear me, commune with me. And Jesus seems to always want to bring us to the Father. So Jesus famous so that we can get the father so i just wanted to talk a little bit about him tonight thanks for listening to the calvary monterey podcast please visit calvary.com to learn more about calvary monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional bible teaching from our senior pastor nate holdridge thanks again for tuning in see you next week